Empower Radio presents the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Kroll. Hello and welcome everyone. You're listening to the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. Each week we gather right here to make connections that break through the illusion of separation. How do we navigate the liminal space during the greatest transformation in all of human history? We live in one planetary community in which all its diverse parts are vital contributors to the functioning and well-being of the whole. We all have a shared sense of responsibility to live for the good of that whole, and it's time to address our collective crises and build a better world made up of cooperative communities caring for all life. Today, we conclude our series on the book, Our Moment of Choice. And I invite you to take a few deep breaths, open your mind, connect with your heart, and settle into your essential wholeness as I introduce our three guests. Dr. Elizabeth Satoris is an internationally known evolution biologist and futurist, speaking on all five continents, teaching living economies and how to navigate our perfect storm of crises. After a postdoctoral fellowship at the American Museum of Natural History, she taught at MIT, the University of Massachusetts, contributed to the Nova Horizon TV series, became a fellow of the World Business Academy with an honorary chair in living economies and is a fellow of the Findhorn Foundation. Dr. Satoris is a co-founder of the Worldwide Indigenous Science Network and of Rising Women, Rising World. She's the author of Earth Dance, Living Systems in Evolution, A Walk Through Time, From Stardust to Us, and co-author of Biology Re-Envisioned. Her latest book is Gaia's Dance, The Story of Earth and Us. And Dr. Kurt Johnson has worked in professional science and comparative religion for over 40 years, a prominent figure on international committees, particularly at the United Nations. He's an award-winning author of the influential book, The Coming Interspiritual Age, and seven other books. Most recently, he's the co-editor of Our Moment of Choice. Kurt has served on the faculty of New York's Interfaith Seminary for 12 years, and for 25 years was associated there with the American Museum of Natural History. He is host for the Convergence Radio Series on Voice America and an editor of three magazines, The Convergence, Light on Light, and Conscious Business, ordained or certified in five religious traditions. Kurt has a PhD in evolution and ecology. And finally, Dr. Robert Atkinson, author, educator, and developmental psychologist, is a 2017 Nautilus Book Award winner for the story of our time from duality to interconnectedness to oneness. He's also the author or co-editor of eight other books, including Our Moment of Choice. He is Professor Emeritus at the University of Southern Maine, an internationally recognized authority on life story interviewing, a pioneer in the techniques of personal myth-making, and founder of One Planet Peace Forum. And what an honor to have all three of you on our show today. Welcome to you all. I have a traditional first question, and all three of you have been a guest on my show before, so you've answered that question. So today, I want to introduce it with a twist to the question. And Elizabeth, I'm going to start with you. How can all things connected, that's the title of our show, but the whole concept of all things connected, inform or influence our moment of choice today. Elizabeth? Thank you, and aloha from Honolulu. I'm here in the islands in the middle of the biggest ocean, uh, little tiny islands. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, it's in only in our uh, 
world today for the past couple, maybe a hundred years or more, that we have thought of the world as disconnected, that we've thought of, of uh, nature and humans and everything in terms of individual creatures, individual humans and so forth. So I guess the first thing I would say is that we need to re-recognize the oneness of everything, the the way we are uh, intrinsically interconnected. I mean, just imagine if if your body cells were not really seriously connected, how you couldn't possibly function with three trillion individuals. So uh, if three trillion individuals can get along in your body, I would think that uh, our seven or eight billion humans can do it too. Oh, beautiful response. Thank you for that. And Kurt, let's go to you. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is uh, very much like Elizabeth said, we did have a long history, particularly in all of our indigenous roots, of understanding how interconnected everything was. And then in the period that we went through the Industrial Revolution and the uh, Scientific Revolution and what's called the Enlightenment, and we got very deeply into our heads and we built cities and we got uh, divorced from nature, we we went through a period that paid a lot of dividends relative to technology and knowledge, but but shifted us away from understanding that uh, interconnectedness. Well, what happened then is that that very science and that very intellect and what we had known certainly for millennia through the great wisdom traditions brought us completely around again to this understanding of profound interconnectedness. And now we're living in the implications of that shift, you know, the shift from the, they call the first tier consciousness, which is all about separation, to the second tier consciousness, which is all about interconnection. So actually the, the message of this time is that we are in that time of understanding interconnectedness again, and we're now having to live with the implications of that, and, and they are exciting, and they're also challenging. Mm. And that indeed exciting and challenging. So I love this theme, intrinsically connected, profound interconnectedness. Bob, what can you add to that question? So all things connected is really the what this book, Our Moment of Choice, is all about. I mean, and when we start off with that simple statement, it's simple, but it's so complex and so deep at the same time, all things connected. That really is telling us that we live in one creation in which everything in that creation is tied together. And that means reality is one. And when we bring in the whole concept of evolution, which is another important theme of throughout the book, uh, we get to understand that there is a process and and a and a progression involved in all of that as well. And so our moment of choice is really talking about this evolutionary process, the evolutionary impulse, moving toward a greater general awareness that all things are connected and that all things are tied together. And that's really what um, we try to uh, make evident through the seven circles of the book. And I think when anyone look, you know, really reads the book as a whole, those connections between the seven themes, the seven circles will become very evident. And that's really what uh, what the book is all about, is that all things are tied together. Mm, thank you, Bob. So, so I'm holding our moment of choice, and we just talked about the intrinsic connection, the profound interconnectedness, and, and literally that evolutionary impulse moving us toward greater coherence. And it's a, it's a really important story that is woven throughout all these pages. In fact, I, I'm looking at all the highlighted ink throughout each and every circle and all these different contributors that um, it, it is this piece that, that Elizabeth says, if three trillion cells can work together, so can we as a humanity. And so now is our moment of choice to work together. And both of you, and Elizabeth, we're bringing you on. You wrote an, a beautiful letter to your granddaughter, and it was beautifully written. And maybe 
um, beautiful is not the right piece to say um, due to the topic. It, it's poignantly comforting and yet disturbing all at once because we're looking at the reality of this moment of choice and who we be as a humanity. So can you begin by just sharing with our listeners how this a letter, how the letter emerged and, and the content of the letter. It's, it's really um, brilliantly written. Thank you, Elizabeth. Can you expand on that? Well, thank you for asking that. Um, the, uh, the letter to Issa is to Issa or Isabel, my fifth great-grandchild, and she is only two years old at this point. So uh, in thinking about our moment of choice, I was thinking about what are these next generations? You know, what is this moment of choice for them? And, of course, uh, it's a kind of carefree time for that little baby now, uh, but it will be very quickly, uh, uh, her growing up will lead her to having to deal with whatever's going on in the world. So I was trying to imagine uh, when she's uh, 16 or 17, you know, when it's uh, another 15 years or so uh, from now, what will the world be like? Because the change is so rapid now that we are seeing. And how do we encourage these new generations? So I tried to uh, imagine a, a world in which the sea level is rising and uh, things are looking pretty grim at the rate that we're now having fires and floods and all those things, and dealing with the emotions that uh, our, our great-grandchildren, or mine in, in my case, my great-grandchildren, for many people, their, their grandchildren or their children uh, that we're talking about, too, for this future, what, how will they feel about us? What will they think of us uh, having left them this legacy of what's happening in their world? So there were questions like dealing with, with anger and talking about how emotions like anger are, are feelings, energy that can be transmuted into action. I was quoting a, a poet that had written me a line that said, somewhere the tears and the agony are stored into the chest of thunder. And that was written to me at a time when I was banging my head against the wall over the Vietnam War now many years ago and seeing the first televised war in history, um, watching literally what was happening as children were being napalmed. And he was trying to let me know that that energy I was expending in my anger could be transformed into positive action to change our world. And that led me to uh, a lot of world changer action in a positive sense. So giving the young people hope and showing them that together they they still have choices, that, that it is there there will always be a moment of choice no matter how bad things get. And that the and that we know now we are we are the elders who can talk about uh, what it means to bring our planet back into health and to treat each other as parts of a great human body of humanity. And by the way, it's not just three trillion cells, but more like fifty trillion. It's almost unimaginable with every cell being about the complexity of a human city. So these are big things to think about, and it was fun thinking into the future, even that short a time into the future, and what we can say to the young ones. Well, it certainly was um, encouraging to read your letter, and the other piece that I really appreciated was the education piece. You, as an evolution biologist, um, you know, bring in some important pieces. One was that you, you write how our species um, go through a youthful phase of acquisition and expansion in feisty competition. And mm-hmm. then when it gets too energy expensive, they mature into cooperation as that proves more efficient and sustainable. Can you share more on the evolution from competition to cooperation? I think it's an essential marker in our conscious evolution today. 
Yes, it is, and it's a big one, and it is only now coming into mainstream evolution biology, uh, thanks to people like uh, David Sloan Wilson, wonderful evolution biology that shows that selection of individuals, as we learned in Darwinian biology, uh, was only only a, a, a certain level, a tiny level of evolution, but that individuals quickly form groups, whether they're molecules or cells or, or multi-celled creatures, and that the real important selection in evolution is the selection of groups with the best internal cooperation. And that is why we can see things like our body. And for me, uh, who hit on that idea of a maturation cycle a long time ago, uh, and so I'm, I kind of feel like uh, the world is catching up with, with what I saw, this evolution cycle, this maturation cycle from the time of the ancient bacteria that had the planet to themselves for fully half of the, the f- almost four billion years of evolution, that they went through feisty, competitive, long times in which they were inventive and creative and actually caused problems like global hunger and global pollution. Nothing in evolution has done that since between the time of the ancient bacteria and us humans who seem to be uh, replaying that youthful phase. And then they got together and formed the big cells, the kinds of cells that we're made of as cooperatives. And those cells then, the big nucleated cells being new on the planet, went through almost a billion years of their own youthful phase until they formed their cooperatives, which were multi-celled creatures. And the rest of it we learned in biology, <laughs> you know, in, in high school, uh, the, you know, the, the cells, multi-celled creatures forming in the seas and coming onto land and the flowering and the dinosaurs and all those things up to humans. But that repeating cycle in evolution where there's a youthful, feisty, competitive stage is repeated even in us as individuals where we expect the teenagers to be competitive and we get them on sports teams to channel the, the, the competitive energy, and then we expect them to settle down as peaceful citizens. And here we are. Our cities are very like nucleated cells. They're, they're huge hives where we cooperate by the millions of people. Uh, and, and so that has to be back in the psyche of the whole human species, how very cooperative we are, how much more natural that cooperation is to us than than hostile competition. So uh, that's a very important lesson, of course, for all of us, including the young ones. I'm gonna ex- I want to expand on that just a moment before um, before we move on, because that competitive nature. I I also um, really appreciated how you wrote about um, how how literally empires have collapsed from that same dramatic competition, right? That where where the elites create these huge divides between rich and poor and then they they rigidly hang on to protect themselves and we're seeing that happen in the world today. So can you I mean it really mirrors what we're going through. Help us understand this collapse due to the power and maybe you could give us some examples in history of of how that sense of competition and and of wealth and power has really created collapse. Yes, well, thank you for that, Dr. Julie, because now you've really hit the nail on the head where that's where we are. We are in this stage of where the age of empire is collapsing. And it's a very interesting thing in evolution to know that humanity has been through about a dozen ice ages since uh, we call ourselves humans because they happen uh, roughly every 100,000 years or so. And uh, But we've never been through a hot age, and I remember back in the in the 1980s when uh, uh, Jim Lovelock, James Lovelock, who wrote the Gaia, early Gaia books, um, said to me, 
uh, Elizabeth, pray we go into the ice age we're due for now, because if we humans tip the balance just a little bit, we'll go into a hot age. And while the Earth has had those before, humans have never been through any. Now, that coincides, that, that, climatary, that climate thing coincides with the fact that we've now been through about 6,000 years as humans of empire building, which is youthful mode in evolution. Uh, it's where you're acquisitive and competitive and you build empires and then have them compete with each other. And we are seeing, I believe, the last wave of empire now with uh, with China playing out perhaps that last moment of, of empire building as we get to the oneness of humanity, the prevalence of cooperation, and are allowed to build on that because the whole world economy was built on the idea of the competitive phase, the youthful phase. And so it's so timely that people like E.O. Wilson and then David Sloan Wilson and uh, Kurt and I and others, you know, in evolution biology are finally being heard to show that the age of the collapse of empire is the opportunity for something new. You know, there have been several extinctions along the way in evolution, and after each extinction, there's a flowering of new, wildly new, many species evolving at once. You know, the, the opportunity when things collapse is for new things to arise. After every fire, you see the new life coming up, the new seeds that may not have, have flourished for thousands of years even may be released to come in and and they look almost like new species coming up. So the, the very time when things are collapsing, when our own empire is collapsing, when we watch the British Empire collapse and the Dutch and the others, that it's a wonderful thing because it is exactly the moment of choice when people must see how do we build the new. Hmm. I could listen to you all day, but you mentioned Kurt and his friend, David Sloan Wilson. So, Kurt, we have a break in just a, two minutes or so. I want to give you an opportunity to jump in if you want to expand on any of that since Elizabeth brought your name in this conversation. Yeah, I thought I would just say really briefly, you know, how that transition happened. Uh, you know, obviously, as Elizabeth said, intuitively, we would have had that sense that we would go from competition to cooperation and the data sets of science just were not able to show that until about 2015, 2016, where we were able with uh, supercomputers and everything to, to, uh, to process gigantic sets of simultaneous data and variables and actually see how groups make decisions. And once that was proven, how groups make decisions, which is called you know group selection, multi-level selection, and that then turned into, as Elizabeth said, mainstream now is what's called the two-level view of natural selection, that yes, it starts out as competitive at the most primitive levels, but as it complexifies, and particularly when there's sentience and intelligence, then it goes completely to cooperation. And that's mainstream now. And as she said, it was David Sloan Wilson and E.O. Wilson um, in 2016 who rewrote sociobiology based on the two-level view of natural selection. And, and now that that's, that's mainstreamed, and as they said in a commentary in the quarterly review of biology, uh, we know this is the truth now and everything else is commentary. So last thing, because we only had a couple of minutes, is this big question is, is there enough time after 150 years of misunderstanding Darwin and Darwinism that we can actually see uh, the cooperative uh, model when it's actually the competitive model that's still running business, it's still running economics, it's still running politics. So we have a huge amount of homework to do with this relative, uh, relatively recent epiphany, like Elizabeth said, that it actually goes from competition to then cooperation. Okay, we have our work cut out for us. I'm Dr. Julie Kroll. You're listening to The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. We're here with Dr. Elizabeth Satoris, Dr. Kurt Johnson, Dr. Robert Atkinson, all contributors to the book, Our Moment of Choice. When we return, we're going to bring everybody back in and broaden this conversation 
and hopefully give you some um, little takeaways and homework and things you can do right now, right here in this moment of choice. We'll return in just a minute. The Empower Meditation Channel. Non-stop meditation music 24 hours a day in the new Empower Radio app. Music to empower your meditation, help you relax, sleep, or provide a calm background while you work. The Empower Meditation Channel is interruption-free. Listen now with the Empower Radio app, free in the App Store, or listen online at empower.fm. Soothe your soul, calm your mind. The Empower Meditation Channel. Confessions of a Potentially Perfect Parent, brought to you by AdoptUsKids.org. I might look like an adult, like a person who could possibly be a parent, but I have no idea how to talk like one. And everyone knows that if you want to be a parent, you have to sound good when you say things like, Don't make me turn this car around, or because I said so, or don't make me come back there. I don't even really know what those things mean, but I know that I actually believed my parents when they said them to me. How did they manage to sound so convincing? Here we go. Don't make me come back there. No, that's not tough enough at all. Kids can sense weakness. Don't make me come back there. Ooh, yeah, that's better. In fact, that kind of sounded like my dad. Weird. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. There are thousands of teens in foster care who would love to listen to you practice your dad voice. Call 1-888-200-4005 or visit adoptuskids.org for more information. This message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt Us Kids, and the Ad Council. Every three minutes, another woman gets the news that she has breast cancer. And here are some of the first words she hears. Her two new oncogene, aromatase inhibitor, ductile carcinoma in situ. What do these words mean? How are you going to decide what to do if you can't even say what you have? This is Olivia Newton-John. As soon as you get your diagnosis, you can go to breastcancer.org. It's a special place on the internet where you can learn how to say all those breast cancer words and find out what they mean. At breastcancer.org, you can learn more about your particular kind of cancer and your treatment options. Prepare a list of questions for your next doctor's visit and get all kinds of other useful information to guide you and your family through this. Breastcancer.org. The first place to go the minute you find out you have breast cancer. This is you over 30 years ago. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And this is your mom now. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Roles change without us noticing. That's why AARP gives you the information to provide even better care for your loved one. Visit aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show. All things connected on Empower Radio. Welcome back. Hey, if you're inspired by our conversation today, I invite you to share it with others and perhaps listen to it again. You can do that by visiting my website at thedrjulieshow.com where you'll find all the archive links as well as a listing of upcoming guests. Again, that's thedrjulieshow.com. Also stay connected all week on my Facebook page, All Things Connected with Dr. Julie, where we continue the conversation. I invite you to be a more conscious, courageous, and compassionate co-creator, maybe I should add cooperative today for the theme of the show, of this beautiful, healthy world we depend on. Come work with me. There's lots of different ways you can do that. And you can check out those opportunities at juliecrawl.com. I'm here with three contributors, two of the co-editors for Our Moment of Choice. You can go to ourmomentofchoice.com to learn more about the book, order a copy, and see all the, I think, 43 contributors of this book. We have had a beautiful conversation. And before I I go into this beautiful conversation, I just want to mention, go to the show page. You can find links for all three of our guests today on the show page, Elizabeth Satoris, Dr. Kurt Johnson, Dr. Bob Atkinson. And we've had a really um, beautiful series, um, nine shows total on our moment of choice. It's been it's been delightful and a, quite an honor and privilege to host this, um, Bob. And I just want to give you a moment here. You you helped me 
in crafting this series and, and inviting the guests. And it has almost been like a college course all in itself. Um, nine hours of really poignant content, um, concrete and specific tools, tips, resources, ideas, education galore. It's really been an incredible series. So first, I just want to thank you, Bob, and for all your help, you and Deborah both. Deborah Muldow is another co-editor with Kurt and Bob. And then just give you a moment before we dig in some more questions. I'm, I'm looking forward to my first question in this half. But I want to give you a moment, Bob, to just um, help wrap this series up in a bow um, before, before we dig into some really concrete and specific things our guests can take with them today. Uh, yeah, well, thank you, Julie. This is uh, this is really great listening to um, Elizabeth and Kurt. And when and when you bring two evolutionary biologists together with a developmental psychologist, that's another example of how easy it can be to to see how all things are connected. I mean, from my perspective as a developmental psychologist and beyond, um, I'm seeing the same things. Uh, pretty much in the same way as Elizabeth and Kurt just uh, just expressed so so beautifully in the first half. And I mean, when, so when we talk about things happening on the individual level and all these cells coming together to create a, a unified body that works in harmony with all of its organs, to, to and and at the same time grows and develops across the stages of life, that actually is also paralleling the same process that's happening on the collective level. And so, and we, I think they touched on that as well. So the way, there is a way that I think anybody can see this, uh, those connections a little more clearly. And that is by what I, uh, write about in my chapter about seeing, taking a holistic view of evolution. And when we do that, that that's uh, really built upon uh, principles, thoughts, like the Buddha long ago when he said, all things originate from one essence, develop according to one law, and are destined to one aim. When we can understand that and see how that Works. That's a worldview that allows for a purposeful evolutionary trajectory to all things on all levels and sees reality as one and, and harmony as an abiding principle. So that and the extension of that is that that perspective also allows us to see all things going through cycles of birth, growth, maturity, decline, and renewal. That's the important part that gets left off sometimes. And common examples of that process that we've that were already mentioned are the cycle of the seasons, the rise and fall of civilizations, and also the uh, cycle of spiritual epochs. But all of that is an evolutionary process that is leading to leading us toward harmony and wholeness and unity and oneness. And so that, uh, and I just wanted to go back for another second to Elizabeth's uh, epilogue where she does bring in that, um, that metaphor of humanity looking at this process on the collective level, humanity reaching its maturity now. And, and when we do that as a species, we, are also leaving behind our reckless adolescent ways, and we're coming into our own uh, as mature beings and, and a, a mature species. And that's a time when, um, as she says in the epilogue, when safe shores will have been found through the building of a better world made up of cooperative communities caring for all life. And that really is the vision of the book and the, and the call to action 
that the book really is is there for. It's it's a call to collective action on the part of every individual, and when those individual actions are taken towards that vision of wholeness, they will um, be they will impact the whole itself as well. So that's, uh, I think, especially in this time of transition, I mean, where we talked uh, briefly in the beginning about, uh, you mentioned about this being a collective time of transformation and, and being in this transition period, it's actually uh, also thought of as a limbo period. Uh, and that comes into play now, right now in this country. We're kind of in a limbo period between two administrations, and there's so much that's needed and important to be able to not only achieve that renewal that's underway now through on both those levels, national and global, but to recognize what are the underlying supporting and unifying principles that will enable the successful, smooth transition from the old to the new. So it's just amazing how everything really does come together is all tied together. Yeah. Thank you. I I would love to dig into what are those principles. And I'm going to go back to you quoting Elizabeth in the epilogue because you and Kurt also wrote something very similar, which was really beautiful. And, and so I used part of your words in the introduction that we live in, in one planetary community in which all its diverse parts are vital contributors to the functioning and well-being of the whole. And you said, we all have shared a shared sense of responsibility to live for the good of the whole. And if there's one simple selection or, or suggestion, excuse me, if there's one simple suggestion to employ from, from reading your words in this moment of choice, I see this primary essential directive of what you just mentioned, to build a better world made up of cooperative communities caring for all life. And Elizabeth said it, build caring communities for all life. Like how simple and primary and essential is that one directive? So here we are at this moment of choice with the call to build cooperative communities that care for all of life. How can we do this? How are we doing it? I know we're doing it. I know many people who are doing it. Um, and I'm excited about 2021. Um, I, you know, over over in Jerusalem, Shelly Ostroff's bringing out the World Water Law and the Codes for Healthy Earth and building a better world of cooperative communities around caring for our pure water, healthy soil, clean air. So my question to all three of you is how do we do this? Where do we begin? Who's doing it? What advice might you have around this one central theme here? And Elizabeth, I'll start with you. Well, thank you for the question, Dr. Julie. Um, I, As you spoke, I'm thinking about how right at this moment of choice we have faced a, a huge pandemic. And isn't it interesting that when, uh, when uh, our Earth's humans locked themselves up, the Earth recovered so quickly. And that the first thing that we saw the humans shifting on was who are their heroes and sheroes. And it turned out to be the caregivers. Mm. It was the ambulance drivers and the doctors mm. and nurses and, and all the helpers bringing food uh, when, people, when the unemployment rose so quickly, uh, feeding each other, taking care of each other. It's as if we had to, to learn this lesson, or perhaps as souls we made a pact to lock ourselves up so that we had this moment to reflect this moment in which we still have choices. And so we've seen these things happening through 
something that was terrible. Uh, did we have to give ourselves a deadly fever in order to recognize that we've given the earth a deadly fever? Uh, I think a lot about the metaphors, because somewhere I read long ago, by a scientist, and I think it was Stuart Kaufman, but I'm having trouble tracing this. The task of science is choosing the appropriate metaphors. And we have to, you know, we've, for instance, with with the brain, we started out with, with metaphors in the Freudian idea of uh, uh, our nervous system being like plumbing pipes and jams happening in them and valves having to be opened. And then we invented the telephone and, and the nervous system became a, a telephone switchboard. And then we got into computers and so on. So we have to keep changing the metaphors that we use. Metaphors are simply familiar ideas that stand for the things we're still trying to understand, right? So uh, if we notice that, that science always gets politicized, and we had on one side of the Iron Curtain when we were at war with the Soviet Union, uh, the West uh, seeing itself as, as individual competition being the important thing, and we sacrificed community to the individual. And then the Soviet Union was sacrificing the individual to community because they wanted everybody to cooperate in the state programs. And actually, they were teaching uh, evolution biology through Kropotkin's work called Mutual Aid. He had picked up on the, com the cooperative side of evolution. But we can't let these things just go into politics. We have to absorb them into ourselves as humans, recognizing that every individual in community is important, that we, once we reclaim community, then we can take all the things that we have developed in our individual understandings of things uh, and bring them together again, recognizing that we live by our stories, by our metaphors. And, and so science plays an extremely important role here in recognizing that it is the great storyteller for us all. And that's why it's so important now that we see the oneness. Well, that brings up a huge topic for me, so I'm really going to put Kurt on the spot. Thank you, Elizabeth. Kurt, I'm going to put you on the spot because um, science does tell a good story and, and helps us literally be able to understand this. And the metaphors you used was yeah, spot on here with the pandemic, Elizabeth. But we've also seen, Kurt, that we can't legislate cooperative communities that are caring for all of life. We're having a, a, a little disagreement on, on science and listening to science. We're having a, a little um, discord in our political realm, looking at how do we cooperate and come together to care for all life. So, so Kurt, that's my question for you is, is how do we do this looking at, the difficulty and the, the tensions of trying to legislate and trying to come together as one common planetary body here. Yeah, well, one of the things I want to just say to um, preview that is you were to ask the question, going back to something Elizabeth said earlier, why is the collapse happening and why is this transition happening? And the, the reason it's happening is that we've gone into this world-centric era based on metaphors of dominance hierarchies and gender stereotypes that we were simply not aware were so uh, binding on our consciousness. And as we, just at the very time that we know we've needed to create a world-centric worldview, without knowing it, we've said, oh my gosh, it's going it's to be about men, it's going to be about white people, and it's going to be about you know, so-called first world Economies, And so we were holding those dominance hierarchy models and those gender stereotypes when suddenly at the grassroots around the world, those would no longer hold water. So it's really, really interesting at the very time that we could have entered the world-centric period, we suddenly had to have these epiphanies that it's not about the dominance hierarchies of the past and the gender stereotypes of the past. And then that brings us to really fresh new ground in which then, as you're saying, 
what's arisen then is just awareness of what Rianne Eisler calls partnership consciousness or what David Sloan Wilson calls pro-social consciousness. And that's about cooperation, about partnership and new models for economics, for politics, for sociology that actually are about reciprocity, about community, about fair play and all of this. So we, we have those values now that have come to the fore. We have the debunking of the old dominance hierarchies and, um, and gender stereotypes, but we still have this question. I think it's so fundamental. You just asked it. How do we get there when we're so story-oriented and yet so many of the stories now that are so persuasive are not factually true? We have got a, a Rubicon to go across relative to how the human mind works and how our penchant for story works. With what David Sloan Wilson says in his new book, how do we prevent the counterfactual reality? We have seen in the United States that 40% or more of our population will believe and vote for stories that are not true, where they've actually been conned in the sense that the people telling those stories know they aren't true, but they know you can manipulate people this way. It was done by every great dictatorship in our recent history and, and on down through. And even one of those big myths, as David Sloan Wilson says, is the myth of social Darwinism, the myth actually that it is still about competition. And he even questions, can we get out of that myth in time to rebuild? So to, to go then to your question, and then we'll toss that out to everybody else, what are the ways that we jumpstart all the new models and the new ways of inspiring people toward partnership mentality, pro-social, serve-the-whole mentality, the very title of your program, but based on a factual narrative, based on a fact-based view of reality. This is, I think, a bigger challenge than any of us ever imagined, that gigantic percentages of our own population, which are able to vote and be active politically, could actually believe uh, false narratives. So, yeah, I'm going to expand on that, Kurt. This is brilliant. Thank you for that question. I'm going to throw it right back out to everyone as well. But I want to bring in, so so we have um, part of a population that's still in the consciousness of that myth and the paradigm of competition and separation. And we have those who are in a paradigm of cooperation and wholeness moving toward unity. So what comes first? Bob, I'm going to start with you. What comes first here? Our scientists are saying we have to move into action and yet there's others who say we have to evolve the consciousness so they understand what action to move into because really this is about whole systems perspective and whole systems health and our crises are interrelated, interconnected, interdependent, just as the solutions are. So where do we begin? Do we, we begin with the evolution of consciousness and working with that paradigm and the myth? before stepping into action or do we step into action because we have to this is a tough chicken and egg kind of question bob i'm going to start with you yeah that's a that's a big one and and great um and it's it's one of those questions that's not either or it's both and um all of that has to happen together uh because it's all part of a uh the ongoing process of evolution and so the first part that was touched on already too is that we do need a story to live by a story that is based both on the factual evidence that we can get from science as well as the fundamental universal spiritual principles that we get from the world's sacred traditions both of those come into play for us uh, being able to reframe the current story that a lot of people are living by to the story that we really choose to live by. And, that, and that's, um, uh, you know, so in this moment, our, our choice is really um, to live by a story that has the outcome we envision, one of wholeness, harmony, and peace that all the world's sacred traditions foretell, or to uh, struggle in one that doesn't end well. 
for a lot of people, that choice would be pretty clear. But that's the first, if, if we can make, can understand that choice that we have there about the story we live by, then the rest, the next part becomes a little, maybe even a lot easier because once we have that, once we have an underlying set of unifying principles to live by, then a lot of what needs to happen next and the, the either or question that you're asking happens organically and spontaneously. And an example of that happening is uh, January 2017 with the Women's March. I mean, who could have planned a spontaneous march that took place in more than 50 countries around the world at the same time. And that that sprung up then at that moment because of the circumstances that were happening in January 2017 and happened again in um, April, May, whenever it was of this year. With all of the protests around after the after the George George Floyd uh, murder and and all all the um, uh, demonstrations and marching in the streets that happened after that, they were all organic and spontaneous based on what was happening, and it was a they were the the first women's march and the and the Black Lives Matter marches this year this spring were the result of not living in the story we want to live by. And so that's going to, a lot of the action that we're looking for and need will happen organically and spontaneously, as well as individuals making decisions and choices to become more active than they may have been. So, so both of it, it all happens all together at the same time. Mm. But it, but we need that underlying framework and foundation, really, of those of those unifying principles. And that's what I mean. I think I think when you really think about it, it's those underlying unifying principles of justice and and um, you know, in so many realms that brought so many people into the streets this spring. Yeah. Uh, that's going to continue to happen because we, and will happen more and more, the, the stronger and clearer the story we're living, we are living by becomes the more people. Beautiful. Thank you, Bob. I wish I had time to get back to all of you to answer this because I think it is a vital um, piece and we're out of time. But I just, I just really want to put a a pause on this um, comforting piece listening to you that that we do need to trust the impulse of evolution and that the evolutionary impulse is working in all things. So thank you for that beautiful reminder, Bob. And thank you all for joining me today. I appreciate your wisdom so much. And now I want to leave you with the words of Elizabeth Satoris. The catastrophes we brought upon ourselves teach us that love and respect for Earth, restoring her pure waters, rich soils, and clean air, and protecting her remaining wild forests, prairies, and living creatures as we love and care for each other is the only possible way forward. You've been listening to The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Remember, together we are creating connections for the good of the whole. Until next time, I'm sending you a world of love. Bye for now.